I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Hello everybody, it has been a little while since the last kind of links discussion episode for a couple of different reasons. I've had a few sort of special video interviews on my YouTube channel, which came under the same banner as Chichilla Squeaks, but some of them don't always work as audio, so I haven't put them there. But also, I was been away for um, a week. I was actually on a writing retreat. This is something I do want to discuss. I have been working on the second draft of my novel, um, which is, was a very interesting process. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to really document my writing process quite yet. I think A, because I'm still figuring it out, but B, because I'm not doing anything particularly different from a lot of other people. So I don't know how uh, interesting it really is to, to publish it yet, but I probably will at some point. But anyway, enough of excuses. I am now back with a links roundup and a little bit of an update of some of the other things I've been doing. So I'm just going to get stuck right in. So, of course, news of, well, the, the past month now has been Ukraine and Russia. And I'm not really going to talk too much about the war itself, but some of the tech-related things to do with it, because there's quite a lot. Um, firstly, here is an article from Wired by Tom Simonite and Gian M. Volpicelli about Ukraine's digital ministry and its well, the article calls it a formidable war machine. Uh, and there's a great photo here, which I didn't think was recent, but then I noticed everyone's wearing face masks, so I guess it is. Um, I'm not quite sure what it's showing, though, but it's still sort of a, a cool picture. I think Ukraine as a country with a reasonably young and tech-savvy, well, a lot of young and tech-savvy people, uh, those are the ones you tend to meet, of course, when you visit as a foreigner. I'm sure there's plenty who aren't. Um, and also kind of reinventing itself the past decades. It has an opportunity to try a lot of new things. And uh, I was quite interested to read here a lot of the things that they have tried recently and that have helped them a lot during the conflict in terms of um, keeping tabs on people and organizations and things like that, but also um, how to how to accept uh, different donations in terms of things like uh, cryptocurrency, how to access the offers of new technologies such as uh, Starlink, um, and also recruiting a volunteer IT army, which I've been lurking in the Telegram chat of that. And they also did a whole bunch of other kind of interesting schemes. Whether they will will uh, give the desired result, of course, is uh, something that remains to be seen. But uh, you see these photos endlessly of a lot of the people kind of on the ground involved being quite young um, and looking different from how you'd expect, I suppose, which um, is a result of a, different, a bunch of different reasons, but um, I kind of like the look of it. And, and a lot of it, uh, well, it's an interesting to see that in crisis, you know, it, it creates these opportunities in many different ways. It's not always the obvious ways like, like weapons or warfare or something like that. Uh, a lot of it goes back, apparently, to when Volodymyr Zelensky was elected and he handed um, the current head of the Ministry for Digital Transformation, 
who is Mikhailo Vedorov, I think. Um, and he was in charge of a lot of the election, digital election campaign. And apparently there was a lot of scepticism about him in the first place. He hired a lot of people who didn't really have any experience of government, but it doesn't necessarily always be a bad thing. Um, and I think there's a lot of enthusiasm in Ukraine. I have visited a lot of the tech scene there, and there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. And sometimes it does manifest itself in a little bit of naivety. But I think in a situation like this, that obviously gets reversed very quickly um, because it's not a naive situation. You kind of need people who who have to figure things out and work things out. Otherwise, it's a very drastic problem. So uh, it's very interesting to see how some of this has worked. Um, and they have an app called, I pronounce DIA, D-I-I-A, which is sort of like a lot of the other digital efforts of especially the Baltic countries, a passport, driver's license, and other services. Um Delivered in four months and used by around 40 million Ukrainians, which is quite a significant percentage of the population. Uh, and they do a lot of other things through it they were working on as well. And more recently, I guess, the ministry's efforts have resulted in lobbying a lot of American and, and European tech companies, resulting in some of the things we just I just covered earlier. And... You know, the, the support from tech companies for Ukraine and the opposition to Russia has been remarkable in some respects, actually. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that's necessarily down to this one department, but I suppose it was motivated and um, uh, given energy from it. Um, I have noticed with a few of their things, though, that the services are constantly down whether that be to ddos attacks or just a lot of use which some could argue is kind of the same thing um but it's been fascinating to watch so far how it's all been working and especially for someone like myself who's at a distance but has digital skills kind of how i could join from afar and help with with some of these efforts um and then i guess hopefully when it's over with a positive result, um, helping kind of rebuild some of the infrastructure and enthusiasm through those same skills as well. But if you're interested in, in seeing a lot more about what they've all been up to and some of the other efforts of the ministry before and now, then take a look at that article. Um, I found it very inspiring to see what they had been doing. This is a side of Ukraine I kind of knew about but didn't see directly because I wasn't a citizen the times I visited. Related to this very, very directly is um, an article from Technology Review by Tanya Basu, the online volunteers hunting for war crimes in Ukraine. This, again, relates to a lot of those uh, campaigns I just discussed uh, people looking to record war crimes. This also relates to a lot of the other teams who have been um, dismissing um, misinformation on the internet, uh, check, fact-checking images, and, and often there's a lot of things that are used that are not current. It comes up a lot. Um, and But this is specifically around yeah collecting evidence that will hopefully be used in war crimes uh, tribunals in the near future. And it's kind of interesting to think that I wonder, like, 
how were war crimes conducted before you kind of had this ability for citizens to record things? Because there's a lot of crimes like that that would very much go unreported or unrecorded um, because of the nature of how they happen. Um, and they cite here that yeah, there have been many other recent um, crises and conflicts where this happened. Syria was a good example, a flood of photos and videos documenting what was happening in these possible abuses and violations of international law and human rights. But then it does follow up, unfortunately, and yet even with all that data, justice has been slow. And this is obviously a risk. And, of course, it depends on the winners and losers what happens there. I've often, I was actually wondering as well because there, is a, there was in the news today about the International Criminal Court um, starting, to, starting proceedings against a, a different conflict from the past. And I also wonder, like, what's the end result? Of that, what does it what does it mean to those people who are charged as well? Like, uh, like where do they go? Uh, there's a lot of these sorts of technical details of it that I was kind of interested to know about. But if you're interested in knowing a little bit more from the technical perspective, then jump over and have a read there. One more on the kind of the 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 repercussions of this conflict. Um, another one from Technology Review from James Ball quite recent, actually, from the past couple of days. Russia is risking the creation of a splinter net, and it could be irreversible. This is uh, interesting because there are other countries, obviously, that have created their own kind of pockets of the internet uh, through firewalls and filtering and things like that. Often uh, China is probably the biggest example. But it still uses these same protocols and access. And in theory, if the Chinese government wanted to just flip a switch, then access would kind of flow in because they're still using TCPIP and other standards. But Russia is kind of finding itself in a different situation in that it's kind of being disconnected completely and fully blocked from the provider end, not the country end, which kind of means that Russia could end up kind of going into its own little direction. And by the time we emerge from this, there may be no will on either side to actually reconnect to that. Uh, and this is, this is actually one of the things I worried a lot about the kind of sanctions against Russia. You know, there's plenty of historical examples to show that um, ostracizing a nation doesn't, isn't always a good idea because in the long run you end up with a bitterness that manifests itself later. Uh, you kind of see what happened between World War One and World War Two here as a classic example. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people use VPNs, for example, to access services where they're blocked. And if you are not using the same protocol, that doesn't even work anymore. So there's not even an option for people to get access to these. I, I don't know, this is... Not something that you could really put into operation overnight, I don't think. Although apparently there have been some um, some pre-existing efforts from some countries like Russia and China to have these kind of options uh, in the first place. Um, and this, this, this sort of worries me a lot because whatever you may think of the modern internet, the, the structures underneath all the kind of commercialization and um, uh, splitting of it into commercial entities is still there. You can bypass all that if you want to. But if you change the fundamental piping of it, 
and that those options are gone and that's that's kind of more concerning in itself and the very kind of way TCPIP functions is sort of destroyed and that yeah that worries me quite a lot and kind of related to this i've got a couple of crypto related articles here that look at this from a slightly different perspective and possibly creating some similar problems. So here is one on Wired from Shanti Escalante de Matai. Web3 threatens to segregate our online lives. And this is where something, this is an interesting perspective because Web3 has often put itself out there as a democratizing of the internet. But in reality, this is not really the case. Anyone who's ever tried to engage with NFTs or cryptocurrencies or any kind of Web3 application realizes it generally involves installing a variety of other applications that you haven't needed before, which follow their own standards. This relates to the last conversation. They're not very user-friendly still at the moment and often mean that a lot of kind of quote-unquote normal people can't really figure out how to use them. So this effectively means that actually Web3 is, instead of uniting the internet, kind of creating its own whole. So very similar to the last article just spoken about. Um, and, I mean, this is weird because in contrast to the last conversation, it's kind of a self-opted um, separation of Web3 and Web.2 as opposed to the Russia one where you have a lot of people who are just kind of forced into it. But that almost feeling of an attitude of um, from both sides doesn't really help. Um, it doesn't really help the people on the Web 2 as kind of impressions of Web 3 if it becomes like a gatekeepered, uh, almost as bad as like, you know, having to use uh, Apple devices to access Apple services and things like that in some respects. Um, and... One of the opening conversations around this was a discussion in February around the Ethereum name service, which I used to work for the Ethereum Foundation. I remember this. I think I recognize the name of the person. Um, and a person, a key person in that community, a key person in that community said some things that made a lot of the rest of the community kind of upset offensive to, uh, offensive discussion around homosexuality and transgenderism and a whole bunch of other things. The problem comes is that if you have someone who's dominant in a community and you wish to um, move on, it's hard because that person has stakes and voting stakes in your community. So you can't really vote out a person who has a lot of the voting power, if that makes sense. It's like a dictator who doesn't can't you can't get rid of because the structures around them sort of don't let you. Uh, it's a little maybe taking it to an extreme. I don't know. It depends on your opinions there, but and it sort of highlights at a more conceptual, uh, sociological level the problems with Web three and, and the kind of decentralization as well. And yeah. This is something that actually always bothered me quite a lot in some respects, and it's happening increasingly so. And I feel like after quite a long time now of chipping away at trying to get Web3 usable, it's still not. So these combinations of technical barriers plus the inability for some of the communities to move forward sometimes 
bothers me a lot. And and this leads very nicely to my final article in this kind of um, selection on Time magazine from Andrew R. Chow. Uh, the man behind Ethereum is worried about crypto's future. This is uh, Vitalik, Vitalik Buterin, the kind of so-called, one of the so-called creators of Ethereum. And I have met him a couple of times when I was working in that space. And yes, he's an extremely, um, he's almost the archetypal uh, reserved tech nerd who reluctant leader who just kind of wants to get on with the thing. Uh, he doesn't like parties. He tends to sort of vanish very quickly after he's been invited to do things. Um, and he's very utopian and idealistic in his beliefs around what Ethereum should be used for, which is fine, but he's actually getting to a point where he's becoming more outspoken about it. And this is sort of what the article talks about, um, where he feels, I suppose, outvoiced in many ways about what's going on. Um, so he he voices his opinion in the best way he knows, which is write blog posts, which, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't reach everybody, especially the kind of like tech bro VC sort of crowd who are very loud and boisterous and it's kind of difficult for someone like him to be heard above them. Um, I just, yeah, I found reading this about him quite fascinating and it talks a lot about his history and stuff like that, his background, um, and just how he's held kind of still in this this this, this revere. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but that'll do for now. And yet... Um, he still holds on very much so to his core kind of uh, motivations, which I, I massively respect. I kind of believe a lot of what he believes, but I'm not as, as dedicated to it. I mean, he, I suppose, is in a position um, status-wise and financially, thanks to Ethereum, that he can do that without having to really worry. But still, um, to get there in the first place, he had to, uh, had to, to build up to that. I found it a very interesting article and actually kind of encouraging in some ways. It almost made me want to reach out to him and be more involved with the Ethereum Foundation, but like along those lines. But yeah, um, so that to me rounded off the kind of content around these topics quite nicely. To, to And he's also uh, Russian, Ukrainian, Canadian born. So also kind of relevant to the what came just before. Finally, uh, I kind of lied. Actually, this is sort of equally as um, follow-on and connected to the last few. Uh, Drew Austin, again on Wired, the end of infinite data storage can set you free. So this specifically was talking kind of about Google services uh, and how people got used to just leaving their images, their emails, their files just everywhere. But kind of for various reasons, people are actually starting to hit those limits. Um and kind of this assumption around that data will always be free and it's so cheap it doesn't matter is is sort of waning. And this relates a little bit to cryptocurrency because blockchains also use a lot of data and it's all hosted somewhere quite frequently on providers like AWS and Google, which um, in my mind has always had issues in itself. Um, and I think it's I think it's worth reading to reflect on on that that you take a lot of these things for granted. Uh, and companies are starting to find they can't keep maintaining those free tiers. So you have to start taking responsibility for this data you just litter everywhere uh, in a different way from the kind of self-sovereignty argument. But yeah, it made me think. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, very quickly rounding off things I have been creating apart from my novel. Uh, I have quite a few uh, videos to catch you up with. Let's um, firstly focus on the tech. I looked at uh, JetBrains uh, Grazi, which was a sort of smart uh, writing tool for the JetBrains um, family of IDEs. Very interesting. Jump over to YouTube and take a look at that. Uh, and also related to kind of to documentation was um, a video sort of walkthrough and kind of hands-on I did with the founders behind Hasty Docs, a tool that lets you keep um, documentation and code in sync, kind of through a sort of SaaS tool, which I also found very interesting to try and I would like to try in a bit more detail. On the less tech front, on the gaming front, I looked at... um, Grievance recently, which was a pretty cool interactive fiction piece. And also I looked at, but for some reason it didn't come up on my website. I also was looking at um, the Home Brewery, uh, a way of creating custom D&D content um, with a handy markdown style web tool. So there's a few videos to take a look at there. And I've got more in progress, of course. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover for now. Um, I'll be back hopefully in a week or so with some new links and some new uh, details of what I've been up to. But until then, lovely to talk to you all again and take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.